Hello and welcome back to Taming the Titans, a podcast from human rights organisation Article 19. I'm Emily Hart and this is episode three, Hope on the Horizon. Today we'll be talking about taking on the Goliaths of our online lives by regulating big tech. I'll be speaking to Agustina del Campo and Maria Luisa Stasi. Agustina is the director of the Centre for Studies on Freedom of Expression and Access to Information at the University of Palermo in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and is vice chair of the Global Network Initiative. Isa is head of law and policy for digital markets at Article 19 and a lawyer with expertise in competition and regulation in the telecoms and media sectors. As the harms caused by the dominant digital companies have become utterly undeniable and the impunity has become so stark the tide has started to turn. Last year, the European Union passed the Digital Markets Act, poised to cause a sea change as it starts to be implemented in the coming months. The Digital Markets Act, aka the DMA, is the most ambitious legislation so far to tackle the issues of extreme power concentration and anti-competitive behaviours in digital markets. Its two central goals are market contestability and fairness. Markets are contestable when new players can come in and contest the position of existing players, putting competitive pressure on dominant companies and trying to convince users to switch because they offer a better service. Contestability has been absent for decades from numerous digital markets. We've been stuck with the same major players, from Amazon dominating e-commerce to the limited number of browsers we have to choose from, to the social media companies who have been playing their fields alone, or that one gargantuan search engine company. As for fairness, it's tricky, as there are any number of possible definitions of what a fair market is and means. The DMA looks at both business and user, so the sort of fairness being aimed at here should include both business relationships and the relationship between a company and the end user, i.e. us. Today, we'll be getting into what the DMA means, who it affects and how, and why it matters for our human rights, both online and off, particularly freedom of expression. So welcome, Isa and Agustina. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Emily. Hi. So let's start by setting the scene a bit. Isa, what is the Digital Markets Act? So the Digital Markets Act is the EU attempt some would say a brave attempt to tackle structural problems we have in a variety of digital markets. Problems such as barriers to entry for competitors, so it's difficult for other players to get in and offer their products or services to consumers, or a number of unfair practices that have been repeatedly observed on those markets. Um, and those unfair practices can be directed to competitors again or to people, to users. And in the Digital Markets Act words, those are end users. So individuals, basically. And that's um, it's a regulation that aims to achieve two main goals. One is contestability and the other one is fairness. So those are quite important words. Contestability means that the markets are contestable. So what we said before, that competitors can easily or reasonably easily <laughs> get in and uh, offer their products or services and compete with the players that are already in there. And fairness, fairness is a quite broader concept and it implies a, a sort of a balancing exercise in between the two parties. And the interesting part of the DMA is that this fairness relates to the relationship between the gatekeepers, 
uh, so the, the big platforms and the business users. So it's a business to business relationship, but it's also a business to end user relationship. So business versus people, that relationship should be fair as well. Right. And what are the key provisions? What's really revolutionary here? So the DMA is a regulation, which means it's going to be directly applicable. Well, directly, it's not exact because some of the obligations in there uh, are self-executing, meaning that the companies that are going to be designed as gatekeepers, uh, so companies that have a specific power in those markets, and they provide a number of core platform services, which is uh, a list of services that are identified as being more relevant, more important for the economy and for the people, such as intermediation services with browsers, social networks, video sharing platforms, instant messaging, this kind of, of services. Um, so those big players, they will need to limit or uh, they're obliged not to perform uh, certain behaviors or put in place certain behaviors that would be fine otherwise for other players. Mm. And the majority of these limits uh, and additional obligations, this is why it's called an asymmetric regulation, because it only targets certain players, not every players in the market. Those additional obligations, they basically try to make competition easier competition on the merits, so they're not trying to favor uh, unreasonably any other player, but also they're trying to avoid the companies that have already a position of power. They can exploit that power, uh, they can exploit their users, and then they can exclude competitors. So those are the additional um, obligations that are in there. Some of those obligations, they sort of build on top of the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation that we have in Europe, and they try to uh, limit certain practices of, for example, gathering data from a user of a specific service and then use the same data for other purposes or other services that are offered by the gatekeeper because this is an unfair advantage that other players they might not, not have if they're not the big platform. Other provisions are more about providing interoperability in between services uh, so that the users, they can cherry pick and say, I want this app from that app store, but I want to use that payment channel rather than this one that is provided by the app store itself. Uh, so it's a way to empower, I would say, end users, but also to create more competition. But it's a long list. Uh, the common trait is that all this additional obligation that should be able to deliver more contestability and fairness, as we said, those are the, the main goals, yes. So let's name names, if we can. Who are going to be these gatekeepers? Which companies are going to be subjected to this new regulation? The regulation, the DMA, provides for three criteria to identify these gatekeepers. Uh, they should um, be the platform that have a significant impact on the internal market, which means the market in between different member states, so the European Union market. Uh, should be the platforms that are important gateways for business users to reach the end users. And they should have an entrenched and durable position of power. In practice, what we're going to look at are quantitative criteria. So those platforms that have a turnover of above 7.5 billion, market capitalization of above 7.5 billion, and 45 million active monthly end users, and 10,000 business users. Wow. Um, so we're very much talking about a few, a few. <laughs> and which few are they? We're talking about um, Facebook? Facebook, Meta, mm -hmm. yes, the company. Um, and then it's going to be Google, it's going to be Amazon. Uh, for Twitter, we're in between uh, because the turnover and the market capitalization might not be hit as thresholds, but there could be other ways to consider Twitter as a, as a gatekeeper. 
um, and possibly I would say one or two more. Yes. Mm. So these are companies that affect numerous human rights online. I would say the most obvious of which is freedom of expression. So Agostina, what does the concentration we currently suffer in those digital markets, what does it mean for free speech and those human rights? Okay, so it's a tricky question. Um, I guess we should go back to the beginning. The internet was built, it still is built on certain assumptions and certain infrastructure that presumes decentralization. The whole thing is built for a decentralized ecosystem. And it's been regulated for a decentralized ecosystem. And you can see that deregulation in the open protocols that the internet offers, in the intermediary liability models that have been created and that Europe has and the US has and that they have exported all over the place. And this regulations are not only state regulations, but they come with the infrastructure and with the architecture of the internet. It is thought of as a decentralized platform, means of communication, um, forum to exercise rights. Um, the whole idea and the hopes that we all had um, on the internet as a democratizing power depends on that key aspect of the architecture, which is it's decentralized. Well, with concentration comes a significant impediment to decentralization. And that concentration we can see not only on social media platforms, but we can also see them in other, in other places of the stack. We can see them in payment mechanisms through the internet. We can see them in app stores. We can see them in uh, device building and device design. Uh, we can see them in many, many places. With that concentration, basically, come bottlenecks that we all will be dependent on for the democratizing power of the internet to actually be realized. So what we thought of as a really essential tool for freedom of expression, for freedom of assembly, for freedom of opinion, for um, exercising a number of different economic, social, and cultural rights, as well as political rights, can actually, as we concentrate this huge power on a number of platforms, we certainly change the basic assumptions that we had over the internet. So what we're seeing today are situations where what we want for the internet cannot be accomplished with the state of concentration that we currently have. The other major thing that I would say here is a lot of the solutions that are coming up to deal with this concentration issues can also indirectly foster concentration, which is interesting. We're talking about the DMA, but the DMA dialogues with a number of other regulations, co-regulations, and self-regulations, and it dialogues with the availability of protocols with the technical part of the architecture of the internet. And I think it's important that we bear in mind that 
concentration and or decentralization is not something that is dependent upon one variable, but it touches on a number of different variables that we need to be very conscious about. Because in addressing regulation or legislation, we're creating incentives, and those incentives translate to protocols and translate to self-regulation. And so why is freedom of expression and other rights dependent on concentration? Because concentration creates bottlenecks of power. And those bottlenecks of power are precisely what the internet came to resolve from the analogic world. Absolutely. I mean, that transition from the early, for example, those manifestos of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, those dreams of a horizontal, almost mycelial style network. Absolutely. That have sort of congealed, unpleasant word, but that's where we're at. They've sort of congealed into where we are today with these bottlenecks that you're talking about, which is nightmarish. But is there is there optimism in this legislation? I think there is. I think there's a number of issues that can be done. I'm very skeptic of one piece of of trying to solve all our issues through one piece of legislation. Mm. And I think that's something that we are hearing more and more often. Unfortunately, these pieces of legislation is going to save us from censorship, from disinformation, from concentration. And a lot of times those saving pieces of regulation do not really dialogue with each other. So the DSA creates standards and potential requirements for companies to comply with that will make it very hard for barriers to be lowered. Rather, there's a number of prescriptions that the DSA is adopting that will probably create new barriers to entry for new companies in a number of different industries. Does it help? I think it does. But I think we need to take it with a grain of salt. I I think a lot of other measures need to come in and we need to think besides these specific regulations that target concentration or or that attempt to target uh, concentration and start thinking a little bit more holistically about how to decentralize, how to promote access, how to generate opportunities for innovation. So rather than prohibit things, see how we can foster the arrival of new players. Right. Issa, where do you sit on this? Well, I couldn't agree more. We need to uh, we need to consider this as an holistic response to uh, very complex problems, and there is not going to be just one piece of uh, legislation or two or three obligations that are going to change the the environment. I do think the DMA is a, a good first step, if nothing else, because end users have been put into the picture at least on paper. Um, so we have sort of a stopped thinking about this competition-related outcomes as something that is just B2B, business-to-business, but we're starting to insert the people in there. Now, there's a lot to do, a lot more to do, and it's not only a technical issue, but it's also, I would say, um, a narrative shift that we need. So we need to consider that end users' rights do matter also when we when we deal with digital markets and the structural powers in those markets. And I think the 
going back to the example of how the internet was born and the decentralization uh, is, is a very good example of what we need to keep looking at. Uh, I also think that the DMA contains some seeds that could either you know, blossom in one or two years' time or, or not. A lot will depend on the enforcement. I, I'm strongly convinced there is nothing worse than having good rules that are not applied because it, it sort of a, builds a feeling of impunity and an accountability that is already widespread and present in there. But on the other side, I'm also conscious about the limits. And I do believe that it's not as ambitious as we would have hoped. And for example, just to be very concrete, there are some rules that introduce a level of interoperability between services, but the scope of this interoperability is quite limited. And it's now focusing on instant messaging. And it's going to be for the basic functionalities today. In two years' time, we're going to pass from this to group calls uh, or group text. And then we will need to, to wait four years before we get full interoperability in between the instant messaging services. And at Article 19, for example, we've advocated for the beginnings saying uh, it's not only instant messaging. What about social networking services or what about video sharing services? And we thought that that could have been a very good way to decentralize the power over the, the kind of information that people share and access and, and see on a daily basis or, or uh, even more often than a daily basis. So it's halfway through, but definitely uh, we're not there yet. So to kind of put this in concrete terms, a more complex view of interoperability would be, for example, being able to choose a messaging service from one platform, a feed curation from another, data terms from another, and kind of DIY your social media, and that those would all be able to interact with whatever choices your friends and contacts are making? Is that what we're describing here as an ideal? That could be a possible scenario, yes. I wouldn't see why not. Technically, it seems to be possible. Uh, with some guarantees, of course, in terms of privacy and security. And there will be different degrees of technicalities or difficulties. But in theory, there is no reason why we should exclude this from the very beginning. And in practice, this would be basically, the message behind would be, uh, we're going to re-empower users to go online and pick their own experience and build their own experience. So what we have now is that we are forced into some sort of ecosystem. So we get into a platform and the platform offers and selects for us everything we might need or we might want while in this alternative scenario we could be the one to decide what we need what we want from whom and why why we like one service rather than another one uh, which kind of criteria we want to use for this selection and so on and so forth so i do believe it could be a big step into sort of a, a re-empowering end users and giving them back a certain degree of freedom that was at the very basic of every competition rules uh, a century ago and then it got lost on the way pretty lost yeah um so another big issue in this area is breakups some argue that these companies are very big and therefore should be broken into smaller parts breakups are envisioned in this regulation but only really as a last resort and a lot of people think that these breakups could raise challenges for for example content moderation because if you break up big platforms you diminish the resources that they're able to dedicate to the moderation of content. Is that a real challenge? And are breakups a useful idea in this context? So there are a number of ways through which you can achieve the decentralization we need. Um, 
breakup in itself, it could be one way, but I think it's a little bit more complex than this because you need additional guarantees as well. Because if we break up Meta into two and then tomorrow we're going to have two Meta, one of the two is going to take the lead and it's going to grow as big as Meta it is today Mm -hmm. and we have not solved the issue. So I think it's a little bit more complex. Uh, It's about creating a number of conditions that will help diversity to flourish and will help to keep the power decentralized. A number of conditions and a number of guarantees as well. So this is the first comment I have. The second one is that Yes, scale matters when it comes to being able to do some offer some services like content moderation, for example. But I would say first, it might not be the only element. Second, it really depends on the incentives uh, that a company has. It's not that because we now have just a, a couple of big social media platforms that content moderation is done in a perfect way. Uh, we've seen all the failures of this. Uh, also, it's going to be more, much more difficult when we have that scale to keep humans in the loop. So the more we go into automated uh, systems without any human in the loop, the more we are exposed to certain risks. And also, usually if the, the company adopts scale scenarios to content moderation, then it's going to be oriented towards creating a one-stop shop solution for all different contexts. But we've seen repeatedly that the contexts are different and those differences matter uh, when it comes to content moderation. Um, So it would be very difficult to think that just scale is going to be enough to take into account of all these differences and nuances. Maybe keeping the moderation closer to the community will be a better solution, could be a better solution. Right. So to zoom out a bit, what often happens with these EU laws and regulations is that they are just copy pasted all over the world to jurisdictions, sort of wherever. What are the likely hitches with doing that with this particular piece of legislation? So I have a couple of comments that are prior to this, but they affect the the answer to this particular question. I think the conversation is still very contradictory. I was listening to Isa speak about interoperability and how we want this to work. And I fully agree with the vision and I fully agree with the goal. However, we are also speaking about platforms as public squares. If they are public squares, then they have certain requirements that that public square needs to guarantee a public square is not the same thing as your family meal. A public square is not the same thing as a bar. A public square is not the same thing as a public forum. There are are different definitions to these analogies that we keep using. UNESCO is now proposing that we think about information as a public good and we regulate platforms from this interesting point of view. And at the same time, we have Twitter that's going crazy and might disappear tomorrow and it's changing the rules. And we are, okay, hold on. So where the alleged public square was, now we have a condominium and there were no safeguards at all to change the public square to a condominium. So think about, I don't know, think about Times Square or think about... Central Park or think about Plaza de Mayo in in Buenos Aires, where the protests actually take place. And then imagine a protester reaching the Plaza de Mayo and finding that, 
Well, they sold it and they're building uh, an apartment building. Now it's offices. What What's happening there? It's fascinating. <laughs> and I, I don't know about anyone else's Twitter feed recently. It's interesting you use the metaphor of a bar because my Twitter feed looks like a bar fight these days. It's nightmarish. It is kind of nightmarish, but it's also, I mean, interoperability and giving users freedom means also, and this with limits, of course, so don't get me wrong, but it means also that there's a lot of users that are not politically correct, that are not leading the conversation the way we would want them to lead it. And they're not doing anything illegal, technically. So in thinking about distributing, decentralizing, and empowering users, I think we have a contradiction there that we need to resolve before we actually push for one model or the other. Because a lot of the regulation that we're seeing, even coming from the EU, is precisely trying to disempower a number of users that we don't think are acting according to rules of speech and engagement that we like, the so-called harmful but legal. What do we do with that? If, if we are to empower users and actually promote decentralization, then we need to understand that there are probably going to be bars, forums like bars, where you have conversations like bars and forums like the public square, and forums like a school, and different forums, and different tones to the conversation. But I, I think it's still very, this whole debate is very, is very contradictory, and, and we're pushing regulation in very different directions um, at the same time. So it's going to be interesting to see how they actually work <laughs> together. Um, and to your question, I think all those contradictions are sort of cascading into more fragile contexts. A lot of countries in the global south have more fragile public forums. And when those contradictions get translated into our conversations, well, a lot of the nuances are pretty much lost. So that's a challenge that I would look out for. Absolutely. I mean, that, that tension between empowering users and protecting people from illegal speech, protecting people from damaging disinformation, protecting people's human rights, and protecting the quality of the public debate, that tension has yet to be resolved in anything that I've seen or read. I agree. I couldn't agree more. And I think this is a, a long way uh, ahead that we have. Uh, but I also believe that... It's a conversation that needs a number of stakeholders at the table. Uh, so in other words, it cannot be solved by a closed regulatory dialogue between a regulator, a public authority and the big company and everybody else is out because uh, this is not the way I think of a resilient democracy. I think about also having the different point of view of the table, trying to have a dialogue to reach a compromise. And yes, as we said from the very beginning, it's much more complex than just breaking a company into two or just, you know, trying to fix everything with just one rule. Uh, we need to decentralize, but also make sure that the different centers for this dialogue, they have the respect human rights standards. 
and proportionally we need to impose them to be increasingly more careful depending on the scale that they have yes i agree that uh, part of this conversation is still essential to have in different places especially outside the european union and the us and definitely so with all the, the stakeholders involved not just a few yeah there's something really interesting I find it's almost a, a sleight of hand or a misdirection when we talk about users or clients or end users, because this is not a normal business relation. These are platforms on which we are exercising democratic rights and contributing meaningfully to how societies are run and how the public debate is had. We're more than just users when we're on one of these platforms. We are interacting with politics, with the state, as well as with each other and with businesses. I think it's important to always remember that when we talk about end users, we're talking about people and people rights for two main reasons. The first one is that we need to make sure that when we discuss this kind of rules, we're not only looking at the economic side of it, not only looking at the business incentives that we want to create, et cetera, et cetera, because it goes far beyond that. The second point is that if we keep it on the economic side, we're going to keep this conversation closed. But what matters is that civil society, the general public, everybody really needs to feel involved because those topics and those rules do matter for everybody. So if we keep looking at end users as just economic entities, consumers or customers, etc., we're missing a big part of the story. Absolutely. So... To end on a, on a positive note, if we can, the Digital Markets Act has gone through. It will be playing an ongoing role in the conversation, likely at a global level, given this long history of copy-pasting European regulation into other jurisdictions. What's the best case scenario here? What can the DMA achieve in this conversation? It can achieve, if properly enforced, which is something we all hope for, it can achieve that we put some limits to the existing gatekeepers and that we create slowly but constantly an environment where we regain the possession of the narrative and we start thinking again about the fact that too much power in the same hands it doesn't really matter if they're private or public but especially if they're private because they're less accountable in general it is bad for human rights and we need to take this seriously. And Agostina, how can it be useful, not necessarily as a template, but even as a, a point of commencement for a discussion about this deconcentration in, for example, in the region you work in, in Latin America? Well, I think it's definitely good that we're thinking about a concentration and trying to reach some decentralization. So... I think it will have a positive effect, even if it's only placing that issue on the current global agenda. I think it, it when we look at concentration, um, we usually look to where these companies are. If you're thinking about how to deconstruct these companies and how to take a little bit of power away from them, then most of the times the means that we have thought of to do this internally were very dependent on the jurisdiction where these companies are based and where these companies actually buy stuff, meaning other companies. Um, and we have no power 
over that most of the times. We do have some power over the companies that are formed here. And it's important that we don't contribute to building this mega powerful bottlenecks. But I think it's it's also important to try to identify means and ways where other smaller provisions that try to target concentration and foster decentralization can play a role. I think the DNA is particularly interesting to offer alternatives to think from jurisdictions that don't necessarily have the power to order separation. So what else can we do? How can we think about this in a smaller scale? What kinds of other issues can we think of that can promote decentralization and that can yeah, at least if if not eradicate, because I don't think we are going to eradicate anything, but at least trying to level the playing field a little bit in the small things that that can be done with limited jurisdiction. Absolutely. Final question, because it's something I'm quite curious about, given that you mentioned where these companies mostly operate, which is in the US. A lot of these companies are incorporated there. Is Europe the right jurisdiction to lead the way on this? Where's the USA in all of this and and what's coming out of that jurisdiction? Well, if you ask me, I think you have under enforcement of of interesting legislation um, that, that could really help in dealing with some of these issues, particularly in allowing the sale or the acquisition of more and more and more companies. If you think of Meta, if you think of Google, and the number of companies and innovation that they bought over the years. Well, it would be interesting to see them start to enforce some of what they already have on the books. So I think they have a role, a very important role, at the very top of the pyramid of concentration. And from a very European perspective, I would say... Uh, the number of factors that I think they have culminated in the EU trying to take the lead of this. We had the e-commerce directive that was issued about 20 years ago. That was, of course, not fit for purpose anymore because everything about e-commerce or in intermediary services changed massively in the past 20 years. So that created a sort of a momentum. And there were, there were a lot of discussions about the fact that Basically, every European person was using services, increasingly so services coming from the US, and uh, nobody was shaping the rules of how those services should have been provided into the European internal market. Mm-hmm. So that was a sort of a, also another layer of the narrative saying we have created for every other products and service, we're trying to create an environment that respects its standards, and we also have certain fundamental values and rights that we want to be respected. It doesn't matter where the service comes from or the product comes from. Uh, so the combination of those factors, I think it was um, a sort of a trigger for all these conversations. And then the European Union is is a big business case for those platforms, is basically one internal market of 500 million people. So it does matter what they decide. The rules of the game in this space 
do matter for a company because it will be difficult, complex, and definitely a business cost to have one way of providing services for such a big market in completely different ways elsewhere. We could talk about these issues, I feel, for hours and hours more, but that is all we've got time for today. Um, So I'm going to wrap up. Thank you so much, both of you, for, for joining us. It's been fascinating. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Isa. Thank you. Thank you both. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Taming the Titans. Don't forget to tune into episode four, Big Brother versus Big Other. We'll be delving into one of the biggest issues in tech today, surveillance capitalism and companies' relentless and invasive mining and exploitation of our personal information. Can competition policy get its teeth around data exploitation and profiling and targeted advertising? These are practices at the very core of the profit model, and which drive some of the worst ills that the titans of tech have visited upon the world. How do we protect our right to privacy in the face of Big Other?